It's not electrical. It's the, it's the air, air conditioner. Okay. okay. Yeah, the, the air conditioners, they get water condensation built up in them and then they got to pump that. Got it. Pump it. Okay. All right. So thanks for showing up for the English Sunday School this morning. I don't have any notes for you, but I could grab some pieces of paper. Uh, we're, we're going to transition here. We're trying to bring in some technology. Thanks to Brother Elliot for the, the monitor. We're going to try to put it to good use. So we're continuing our study on biblical creationism. And this is this, this section on looking around at creation around us, plants and animals and, and creation, at evidence for creation and against evolution. In this particular part four now of lesson three, we're continuing to look at plants, and specifically today, we're going to look at them from a different perspective than we did last week. Today, I want to get into some curiosities about plants that give us evidence for the creation, uh, creation as a theory and biblical worldview uh, in general. So thorns and thistles is where we're going to start this morning. Thorns and thistles are a, a bane of our existence. <laughs> They're a bane of our existence. Especially if you farm in Michigan. That's right. We know that some plants, at least, were redesigned during the pronouncement of the curse since thorns and thistles arose in Genesis 3.18. When man sinned, God cursed the ground with thorns, which are a negative, hurtful, even repulsive element uh, that intruded into the original creation's perfection. Hebrews 6.8 tells us that these plants are only fit for the fire, but they are, there are far more types of pesky plants that remind us of a, that we are in a sin-cursed earth. One is weeds. You could make the case that weeds are included in the thistles category because thistles are a kind of weed. However, uh, that's not necessarily, we don't have to get caught up in the are flowers considered grass or herbs kind of discussion. We know that they're there, right? Weeds, uh, ever since Adam was expelled from the garden, mankind has had to worry about how the wheat and the tares interact and how they need to be separated. Weeds have uncanny design features. We could do an entire lesson on the design of weeds that make them more prolific and make them purposely overtake ground and overtake other plants. But they're particularly effective, as you mentioned, at uh, depressing crop yields. And that has been part of that curse on man's tilling the ground to provide food for his family ever since the beginning. We continue to invest billions of dollars in mechanical uh, devices, in farming techniques, and in chemical compounds to try to stay one step ahead of the ingenious weed. I don't know if we're winning that battle or not. <laughs> Another curiosity is parasitic plants. Most of us think of plants as stationary and inactive, like this one next to me. And not that they are out actively seeking nutrients, but parasitic plants do exist, and they're actually they actually make up about one percent of flowering plants. There are 4,500 species of parasitic plants across 28 different plant families. These are just a few examples. This is the corpse flower, found primarily in Indonesia. Only the the flower, if you want to call that ugly thing that, is visible 
all of the rest of this plant, all of the systems of this plant are inside the vines of other living plants. They, they start out as just a little bulb on a vine when they found a crack and got inside of it and all of their root systems and all of their reproductive systems spread out inside the vine of that other plant. It's like a botanical tapeworm. Yes, exactly <laughs> like that, except tapeworms don't like to show off as much as that thing does. Some of these corpse flowers are bigger than this screen. Mm. And just to give you a, and the other one, which we obviously know, mistletoe. Mistletoe, it, this is considered a total parasite because it cannot exist on its own. It has to live inside of another plant. Mistletoe is considered a hemiparasite because it does have chlorophyll in its leaves to be able to make its own energy, but it also exists inside a tree, right? So it's partially or half the time a parasite. But this is the most popular parasite in the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is in the northern hemisphere. That's right. It's the most popular parasite in the world. But these notorious crop pests, um, particularly in developing countries, are everywhere. This is witchweed, and in Africa, specifically in South Africa, it has caused billions of, oh, I think actually estimated $3 billion a year, every year, of crop damage, especially in those developing countries. And it's, this, is, this his entire crop is just taken over by witchweed. He's not growing witchweed. <laughs> He's growing something else. And it's taken over by witchweed. So what else are there? Another curiosity is carnivorous plants. We've probably heard of a few of these. I, I would suggest... I'm sorry, can what, what was that at again, that location? That was in South Africa. South Africa? Yeah. Oh. yeah. And it's all across the African continent, though, mm. witchweed is a, a huge problem. Mm. It's everywhere. We even have it in America, but we have more money and time to invest in trying to get rid of it. Um, a lot more genetic modification of things to try to, like that's, that farming techniques and chemical compounds and stuff that aren't necessarily prevalent in third world countries. So they have more manual methods of dealing with weeds and which weed is, is tenacious, it's tenacious. So another one is carnivorous plants. Everybody's probably heard of the Venus flytrap, right? I'd say that is the most well-known, but it's not the most common. The pitcher plant, and it's hundreds of varieties around the world, is actually the most common carnivorous plant. And then um, there are underwater or aquatic right, uh, types of carnivorous plants, like the water wheel and the bladderwort that are either on the water or under the water and that feed off of living creatures. So lots of different options here. The question that I would put forth is, do these curious types of plants that seem aggressive and, and counterintuitive, do they contradict God's declaration of a very good creation? So I believe that God redesigned plants after the fall to perform these functions. The, the exact genetic makeup of them, the species that they are considered to be a part of, may have existed with a different purpose before the curse. Just like snakes were never meant to be poisonous, but they have a different purpose after the curse. Right? 
I think that there is there is definitely a case that can be made that God changed their purpose. It's also conceivable that God simply withdrew his sustaining or restraining power from the creation with the curse and allowed the second law of thermodynamics, which is all things tend toward disorder and chaos, to be augmented by a, a removal of his spirit, if you will, so that there was more disorder and more chaos and more entropy in the creation, giving more of an ability for things not to be considered in a perfect state anymore. Whichever way that you look at that, whether you're seeing Genesis 3.17 as these curses started, <laughs> or whether you think they were before and changed, or whether you think they were created specifically then, or whether you think they have always been, it doesn't, it, it's not really a big deal um, to think that we move from that curse to now, over years and years, the point where, like Paul said in Romans 8, we see a, a creation that groans and suffers. And it's because of this, the curse of our sin. That the creation was not meant, the creation was meant to be very good and is now groaning and suffering. But it's not a problem for a biblical worldview to see weeds and carnivorous plants and parasitic plants and thorns and thistles because it actually is an aid in sharing the gospel and talking about creation and the flood and the curse. Uh, let me use an example from an old preacher to show you what I mean about how thorns and thistles and all of this can be an aid in showing the gospel. So this particular message was called the splendor of thorns. And Pastor, you may have heard most of this, but uh, some of it I had not. So, um, you know, before I, before I read it from him. So, at first glance, the perfection of the world before the fall seems forever lost because of unsightly thorns. The negative associations of thorns are what make their appearance in the Bible so intriguing. Because God weaves the very thorns into the revelation of his grace. He gives them a star role in the unfolding drama of his judgment and unbelievable mercy. The first time we see thorns after the curse in Genesis 3 is in Exodus 3. Thorns and thistles is a phrase used in the Hebrew to include all plants that prick or sting. And in Exodus 3, we see the burning bush from which God spoke directly to Moses. It's derived, the word, the Hebrew word there, that's bush, is sene, which is a bramble or a thorn bush. So in the English, we just think it's a bush. But if you read it in Hebrew, you know it's a thorn bush. It's derived from a root word in Hebrew, actually, that means to prick. So Jesus also referenced the, the same bush in Luke 20, 37, and he used the Greek word batos. And then batos also means a briar bush, a thorn bush, or a bramble. The, again, in Acts 7, when Stephen speaks at the same time, uses the same word, batos, in the Greek. So sene in the Hebrew, or batos in the Greek, all mean a thorn bush. 
And so we see this first evidence of thorns and thistles where it's not just the curse, but we have now God speaking out of the curse. So the one who appeared in the garden and pronounced the curse of thorns as a symbol of our punishment now reappears in the midst of thorns, promising deliverance. And that bush is also on the same mountain that God would later give the same man, Moses, the law, which is yet another reminder of our curse and our failure, but yet another reminder that will lead to deliverance. Because Paul says this law is just a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Then we see the thornwood tabernacle. The next time that we see thorns is in Exodus chapter 26, when God commands Moses to build the tabernacle out of shittim wood. And shittim means thornbush. But it's the shittim wood is of the acacia tree. If you're in Australia or Africa, acacia trees are big and beautiful. And some of these, like in Zimbabwe, a, a, a giraffe can barely reach these branches because these are huge trees that would make really great things out of out of that wood, right? In Hawaii, they call it Hawaiian mahogany because it's such a great wood to use for things, and it's very sturdy. But in Israel, they don't look like that. In Israel, <laughs> the acacia tree is a small, gnarly tree with big thorns that survives in the desert where nothing else can. Very big thorns, very small branches, very short tree. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> so Israel had the hard task of turning this useless wood into boards and furniture. And God commanded them then, in Exodus 26, to cover it all with gold. So God told them to take a cursed element of the fall, which we see from Hebrews is only fit for the fire. This burns really well. <laughs> okay? It's only fit for the fire. But he wanted them to cover it in gold. To build this. So take that cursed element of the fall. Fit only for the fire. Beautify it with gold. To outfit the glorious dwelling place of the fiery pillar of his presence. And if you don't see the picture in that yet, there's more. Then there's the field of thorns. In Numbers 25.1 and Joshua 2.1, the last place that Israel encamps before they enter the Promised Land is Abel Shittim, or the Field of Thorns. And the Israelites were living in the Field of Thorns, surrounded by the symbol of their disobedience because Moses, the lawgiver, had disobeyed the law of God at Meribah Kadesh. In Deuteronomy 32, 49-51, we see that account where God basically said Moses had to perish. And the people would be left to long for the promised prophet that would be better than him. He would lead them in. The prophet that led them in was Joshua, whose name means Yahweh saves. But he was also just a picture of the better Joshua to come, whose name in Greek is Jesus. The next time that we see thorns is when they are finally woven into the climax of God's divinely crafted plan of redemption. Jesus, tortured in anticipation of crucifixion, 
was mocked while wearing a crown of thorns from the acacia tree. The thorns and thistles of Eden's curse became his mocking crown. Through Christ, thorns take on a whole new meaning because they focus our thoughts on God's plan of redemption, worked out through the millennium. And while Adam's sin disrupted the beauty of God's creation, the Son of God came to earth to conquer that sin, redeem his creation, and set things right. And that brings beauty, even to thorns. So that is a short one. It took me ten minutes to get through that with pictures. <laughs> but that's a short way that things in the creation that we don't think have a purpose can be shown to have a purpose, even if that purpose is only a lesson like this. Again, as I said earlier, with weeds, we could talk about weeds and what purpose they do serve. Actually, they serve a great purpose after the curse, because in the original creation, they covered the whole, plants covered the whole planet. But in the curse, after the flood, right, there are parts of the earth that don't have plant life and parts of the earth that do have plant life. And the parts that don't, they will erode and turn to desert if there are not roots there. We spoke about uh, last week or the week before about the symbiosis between plants and the ground. The plants need the ground to give them nutrients and to give them a place to stay. But the grounds need the plants so that their root systems keep the, the, the dirt in place so that it doesn't erode from wind and water. But if there are massive amounts of ground, whether that's from us turning up construction sites like we looked at yesterday, or whether that's from the effects of nature, something needs to get in there quickly and hold that ground together. And it's called, I forget the term in, in biology and botany, uh, it's the, um, you should know this word, an ecosystem requires something to start and then something to move beyond it and something to move beyond it. It's in steps. So weeds actually serve that first purpose of spreading quickly and rapidly into, in, into an area that is not healthy or uh, uh, beneficial for normal plants, right? But weeds can survive in there and weeds can spread rapidly and then they can hold all that ground together so an ecosystem can start being built. And then regular plants from birds and insects can start to come in. And then they can grow larger and then trees get in there. And the way that you can repopulate forest that's burned, it's fertile ground, but if there's nothing there, if all the seeds are completely dead, right, and then everything has to come in. Weeds actually serve a purpose there in, in starting the process of an ecosystem taking, taking over. So, and God has designed them to have all of these design features, like they grow, they germinate faster, and their seeds can sit longer, waiting to germinate. There was actually from the University of Michigan in the late 1800s, there was a uh, Dr. David Walsh, I think might be his name, name I can't get, but I know he was at Michigan State University, <coughs> and he actually did an experiment that would take throughout the school's future, it would have to go way beyond him. He took 21 different types of invasive weeds, he took their seeds, and he put them in um, bottles, uh, like Coke bottles, of wet sand to just sort of hold them. So he put a, like 50 seeds of each in these bottles, and the concept was that they would come along at yearly intervals, one year, five years, 10 years, 25 years, 100 years, and take some of those seeds and try to germinate them. 
and there were at least two um, types of those weeds that, that are common uh, weeds that, I think milkweed was one of them, but at least two of them, the seeds still germinated after 120 years of sitting in that wet sand in that bottle. They would not germinate in the wet sand because there's no nutrients in there. They just they were just held in stasis, basically. So it showed that we, some weeds are pervasive enough that their seeds that are thrown out, even if you pull up that plant and you kill everything and you start over with all this kind of grass, you know, 15 years later, that so their seed is still going to be there and could germinate. Some of them didn't germinate for several periods of time. They germinated at 10 years, but not at 15, 20, 25, or 50, and then germinated again at 75 years. And so all of that came to show that the weeds from the seed to the, the stalk, they have so many abilities. My favorite one is what they call plasticity, where weeds have the ability with their, their genetic makeup that, that's already planned into their DNA by God, they can grow to fit their environment. They can, one type of weed can be a tiny plant that only creates four seeds without any additional information in its genetic makeup. If it's in a different environment, it can grow to be six feet tall and produce 100,000 seeds. It's the same exact plant from the same exact seed, but could grow to fit its environment, right? To, to do exactly what it needs to do within that particular, that plasticity within that genetic code. It's not a mutation because one seed off of that could do the same thing in the next place. That's an amazing plan of God for weeds to serve the purpose they serve. Even, admittedly, if that purpose is only to curse us, <laughs> to remind us that this is a, it's going to be hard. Life is going to be hard. And there are lots of studies out there that uh, Christians have written about how not everyone's a farmer, right? So how does the curse of thorns and thistles apply to your life if you're not a farmer? And they've taken lots of time and study to extrapolate how what it is that thorns and thistles and weeds do to a farmer's livelihood and to their life and the, the struggles that it gives them and how those struggles principally apply to our regular lives, even if we work for a business or uh, you know another organization or in another country or if we're teleworking marketing, whatever, there are several ways that those things, and so I encourage you to look into that if it's not something you've read before. Next week, um, we'll continue with plants for a little bit longer. There's just so much there. But next week, I want to specifically look at plants that so defy evolutionists' claims of how everything has come to be, that evolutionists had to change what they believe. Not that they started to believe our theory, but that they had to change their own narrative to compensate for it. So if that interests you, um, I hope you'll uh, be here for that next week or pay attention online. Um, is that, does anybody have any questions from today? We have a little bit of extra time for once. I, I just think it's an interesting thing that you can almost call it biblical botany, couldn't you? Just that, yeah. Yeah. The, See how uh, everything works just right with what is revealed in Scripture. That's right. The more that we, with an open mind and a scientific approach, 
a scientific approach, as we talked about in the first week, is from a standpoint of falsification. Science doesn't set out to prove things. It sets out to disprove them. And if it can't disprove them, then you could probably accept it. But the whole point of science is to disprove. And if we end to accept that your assumption is wrong, science, true science, you should accept that my, I'm trying to disprove my assumption, and I want to see my assumption disproven so that I can find the truth. So that I can then go from there with a new assumption and continue to find more truth. If your assumption is wrong and you can't accept that, it's no longer science. Okay? But real science, open-minded science, open-minded science, really approaching creation and or we'll say nature, right? The world around us will never lead you to evidence that supports evolution without interference from man's preconceived notion that there cannot be a God. It is every day, every time I learn something new, every time I read something more, there's more and more and more evidence to support that there is a God, that he did all this, and he wants us to know. Let's pray and then we can move on to service. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this lesson. We thank you for all that you created around us, Father. You put so much work into your creation and into your word to show us who you are, Father. You want us to know your character. You want us to know as much about you as you've revealed. And you want us, Father, to seek your face. Father, help us to do that. Help us to, to turn from our own wicked ways and our own introspection, Father, to, to look, to gaze upon your face and to look at your creation with open eyes and see just how much you have given us. And as I've spoken with, with Sister Brenda before, Father, this creation that looks around us is beautiful. It is breathtaking sometimes. And then to realize that it is still so breathtaking even after a curse. I can't imagine how beautiful it should have been without man's But Lord, I know that one day we will see it again. And we thank you for that promise, Father, that you will build a new heaven and a new earth and you will restore all things to your perfect plan. Father, I pray that you be with us in the service to follow, that you would speak through Pastor Ken and Pastor Edward, Father, that you would give us the word that we need today. Lord, continue to speak to us. Continue to show us more about yourself and your word. And we'll give you the praise and glory you're due. All the things. In the name of your son, Ruth. Your risen Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.